This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS News Face the Nation in 60 seconds. I just saved hundreds of dollars by switching to GEICO. I feel like I'm on top of the world. Disclaimer, you will not be transported to the top of the world. In the unlikely event you find yourself at the Arctic Circle, seek shelter from the elements immediately to avoid frostbite and or hypothermia. Geico will not be responsible if you find yourself in a cave or crevasse with a lonely, abominable snowman, who in all likelihood will force you to play games including but not limited to Go Fish, Charades, Chinese Checkers, or his personal favorite, Red Rover, Red Rover, Send Yeti on over. Geico is not liable for any damages, either physical or emotional. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Today on Face the Nation, the White House and domestic abuse. What is the message? Congress passes and President Trump signs a deficit-heavy budget deal. Who won? Who lost? After Rob Porter, one of President Trump's top officials, resigned following domestic abuse allegations from two ex-wives, Vice President Mike Pence said this. There's no tolerance in this White House and no place in America for domestic abuse. President Trump emphasized Porter's side of the story Friday. He says he's innocent, and I think you have to remember that. He said very strongly yesterday that he's innocent. Then the president sent a sympathetic tweet on Saturday saying, People's lives are being shattered and destroyed by a mere allegation. Some are true and some are false. Some are old and some are new. There is no recovery for someone falsely accused. Life and career are gone. Is there no such thing any longer, the president wrote, as due process? Chief of Staff John Kelly's job appears to be in jeopardy over questions about what he knew about Porter and when he knew it. Congress makes progress on a budget framework, but at a high cost. Plus, as North Korea cozies up to South Korea at the Winter Olympics, things are still frosty between the U.S. and North Korea. Will sports diplomacy help all three countries come up with a way to curb North Korea's nuclear ambitions? We will talk with White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul, and North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows. He's head of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus. Both oppose the budget deal. We will also talk to the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, with his reaction to the president's decision not to declassify and release the Democratic rebuttal to last week's Republican memo on secret surveillance and the 2016 campaign. All that, plus top flight analysis on this week's news, coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Major Garrett. Last week, the government shut down again. Didn't last long. And behind it was something of a breakthrough. Republicans and Democrats agreed on $500 billion in new spending. Congress has six weeks to sort out the details, but... One thing we know already, President Trump's Washington is adding $320 billion to the deficit. Fears of deficits and mounting debt contributed to volatility on Wall Street this week. And what about consumer financial protections? Are they being weakened? 
Joining us now is White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, who is also the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Mr. Director, those issues are important. But first, it's a bad week for the White House in terms of personnel. Why shouldn't women reasonably wonder if this White House doesn't have a lax attitude when it comes to the question of domestic abuse? Yeah, I don't think we have a lax attitude. I think what you saw happen this week, Major, was was completely reasonable and normal. The president had someone reasonable work- and normal. Let me explain that. The president had someone working for him who came to him and said, "Look, I've been accused of this. I've been falsely accused of this. Please don't believe it. It's not true." Um, if your cameraman came to you and said that to you, you probably would give that person the benefit of the doubt, or at least you'd want to do that because you know that person and you trust that person. And that's what the president did up until the time that it became obvious when the photographs came out that the person was not being honest with the president. And that person, after that happened, we dismissed that person immediately. So that, that's an ordinary and it's a very human reaction to the, to the set of circumstances. You don't want to throw people out on the street based just upon the allegation. But as soon as it became apparent to us um, that the allegations were true, um, the, Rob Porter had to go. In other words, Rob Porter deceived the chief of staff of the president of the United States. Uh, I, I think that uh, under the circumstances, he wasn't entirely forthcoming with him, and I think the photographs took everybody by surprise. Was there a blind spot because of the reputation Rob Porter had in the White House? No, I think, I think the president and, the, and, the, and the, the chief of staff, I, am much more likely to believe people, not based on their gender, but based on our relationship with them. If Kellyanne Conway had come to the president <laughs> and said something, we'd be more inclined to believe that person than the person that we don't know. Again, I think that's very natural human reaction to the circumstances. In this climate, do you think the president missed an opportunity and may have insulted people by not at least recognizing the victims in this situation? I, Rob Porter's ex-wives and though the wife of David Sorensen, who are victims. Yeah, I, I think what you saw uh, the president go through this week, and I don't know if you all played the video of the, the speech that he gave or the comment that he made, uh, he was extraordinarily saddened by this. He's, he's been let On down. Rob. By, he's been let down by somebody who he trusted, somebody who he put in a place of, of, of authority uh, and then wasn't told the truth. I think that, that saddened the president. I, th- I think you saw that this week. You've spoken very highly of Chief Kelly, the chief of staff, saying he's brought order and discipline. Was this week a week that is consistent with the order and discipline? Yeah, and again, I keep telling you, and we've had these conversations before, that to, to watch the media cover the West Wing and then go to work there is like night and day. Um, to believe the media that it's, there's complete disarray, there's a bunch of infighting, and it's simply not the case. The, the West Wing continues to function. It functions well. I hear that I'm being considered, in the media at least, for, for replacing the chief of staff. You think that maybe someone would have mentioned it to me. No one's talked to me at all, not a single time. How badly do you about want that, that job? I don't want that job. I love the job, jobs that I have now. And more importantly, I think the chief of staff is doing a really good job. And most importantly, I think the president thinks he's doing a great job as well. Last week, in the midst of all this, John Kelly served the president well. I believe so. Uh, under the circumstances of having someone who is close Even to with you. with that statement that you, says he is a man of a true integrity? You are going to want to believe and trust the people that are close to you and that you know. So, yeah, I think the, the problem here was with, was, was with Mr. Porter, not with the chief of staff. All right, let's go to the budget. Why is spending this money now and having deficits projected at more than a trillion dollars in a growing non-recessionary economy that has already jittered Wall Street for a full week a good idea? Um, it's a very dangerous idea, but it's the world we live in. Here's what happens. We want money to defend the nation. Uh, we believe, General Mattis has made a case, I think, to both Democrats and Republicans and to the public alike, that we need more money to defend the nation against things like the threats from the North Koreans. Um, we were hoping that we could sit down with the Democrats and figure out a way to get additional funds to the military to respond to these threats. 
Publicly, the Democrats said they wanted to help fund the, the, the Defense Department. Privately, though, what they said was they would not give us a single additional dollar for defense unless we gave them dollar for social programs. You knew they were going to say that. Well, but the, publicly, we, they were not saying that. Publicly, they're saying they wanted to defend the nation. They'll say that Democrats care as much about defense as Republicans uh, do, but when the, when the rubber meets the road, they don't. They held the Defense Department hostage, and we had to pay that ransom. Congressman Mick Mulvaney. Would he have voted for this? Oh, probably not. But keep in mind, I'm not Congressman Mick Mulvaney anymore. I'm much closer to, to Mr. Meadows, who you're going to have uh, on the show in a little bit, when I was in the, a member of Congress. My job as the director of the Office of Management and Budget is to try to get the president's agenda passed. And right now, the top priority for this president was getting the Defense Department the money necessary to defend the nation. Let me ask you about your other job, Acting Director of the Consumer Financial Protection Board. It has been alleged that you have stopped that agency's investigation to Equifax. Have you? Um, let me, I, I had to give you a legal answer to that. Um, if you ask somebody at the FBI about an ongoing investigation, you'll hear the same thing you hear from me, which is that I cannot comment on whether or whether or not there's 30 an senators believe you have um, and have written to you on, to that effect. I would encourage those senators to go look at the public 10Q filing that Equifax made last quarter and then to look to the t- public 10Q filing that they'll be making at the end of this quarter. That's all I can say about uh, about that matter. Where does Equifax and that data breach that affected 140 million Americans fall in your list of priorities for this agency you're now running? Yeah. The, the, the agency's priorities remain the same. The Bureau's priorities remain the same. We will protect consumer. There is no question about that. The priorities have not changed since I took over. When you say protect consumers, can you define that? Because there are those who look at your attitude and what you've done there with payday lenders and possibly Equifax as taking a complete step back. What we've done over there, John, is... Major. We, major. I'm sorry, excuse me, goodness gracious. He used to be um, here. He used to be here. Um, the, what we've done here is we've tried to figure out a way to manage this bureau. This bureau is unlike any other federal bureaucracy. It's run by one person right now, me. It had almost unlimited access to funds. It has no accountability to Congress. It is perhaps the most unaccountable bureau or agency there is. We want to run that place with a good deal of humility and prudence. We're not being aggressive. We're not pushing the envelope. We're taking a different attitude towards the job, but the priorities have not changed. Again, how would you define consumer protection under your leadership? What does that mean? What will will people be protected from? That they should be uh, they will afraid of. Be protected from fraud, from unfair and deceptive trade practices, things that are illegal. That's what we do. We enforce the law. We do not make the law. And I think that's an important distinction between my leadership and the previous leadership of of the bureau. We will not be making law. We will not be making stuff up as we go. We will be enforcing the law on the books. By implication, are you saying that's what the previous director did? It's not implication. I'm saying it straight out. Mr. Director, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Face the Nation. We go now to Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul, whose objection to this week's funding agreement touched off an ever-so-brief government shutdown. Senator Paul joins us from Palm Beach, Florida. Senator, what did you accomplish? Well, you know, I think we should draw attention to the fact that we're spending so much money. I ran for office in 2010 with what was called sort of the Tea Party tidal wave at that point. And we were very, very critical of President Obama's uh, deficits, you know, approaching a trillion dollars in a year. We talked endlessly about them. We had 100,000 people rally on the mall in Washington. And I'm still against deficit spending. Just because Republicans are doing it doesn't make it any better. And now we have deficits projected to be a trillion dollars again, and yet in a growing non-recessionary economy. Are you troubled by that? Yeah, I'm very worried. And I think uh, one of the questions, see, Republicans, I think, are not willing to ask themselves is, can you be fiscally conservative and be for unlimited military spending? There's sort of this question, is the military budget too small 
or maybe is our mission too large around the world? And because Republicans are unwilling to confront that, they want you know, more, more, more for military spending. And so to get that, they have to give the Democrats what they want, which is more, more, more for domestic spending. And the compromise, while some are happy, oh, it's bipartisanship, well, if the bipartisanship is exploding the deficit, I'm not so sure that's the kind of bipartisanship we need. From your point of view, Senator, on the defense side of the equation, is the spending and the mission, are they reckless? I think the mission is, is beyond what we need to be. We're actively in war in about seven countries, and yet the Congress hasn't voted on uh, declaring or authorizing the use of military force in over 15 years now. So I've been one that's been bugging the Senate and Congress to say, how can we be at war without ever voting on it? Don't the American people, through their representatives, get a chance to say when we go to war? I think the Afghan war is long past uh, its mission. I think we killed and captured and disrupted the people who attacked us on 9-11 long ago. And I think now it's a nation-building exercise. We're spending $50 billion a year. And if the president really is serious about infrastructure, a lot of that money could be spent at home. Instead of building bridges and schools and roads in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, I think we could do that at home. And the interesting thing is I think the president's instincts lean that way. Um, but his but, policies uh, have not. Got, his policies have not, though. And that's the sort of the problem. And this is something that we've seen even going back to Reagan. Conservatives said, they, oh, we love Reagan. But then the people appointed around him were often big government types. That's a little bit of the problem I see here is that I think Donald Trump is probably the least interventionist-minded president we've had in a long time. I mean, he criticized George Bush for the intervention in the Iraq war. I think he's not that excited about continuing the Afghan war forever. But the generals he surrounded him with don't want to admit that there isn't a military solution. And so the war goes on and on and on. And really, I think after 15 years and a trillion dollars that the Afghan, it's time for them to take over their country. Senator Paul, you and I have talked about this many times. You know the instincts in Washington are to spend. You know that's what's going to happen. And yet you voted for the tax cut, which is contributing to these deficit and debt problems. How do you reconcile those two facts? I think if you're for tax cuts and for increasing spending, that's hypocritical. But if you're for tax cuts and you're also for cutting spending a corresponding amount, see, I would offset the tax cuts with spending cuts. And there are a few of us that would actually do that. When we had the budget deal that lowered the taxes, I also had an amendment to uh, look at and try to control entitlement spending at the same time to pay for the tax cuts. But interestingly, I could only interest three other Republicans. We had four votes total to try to control entitlement spending, and that is where the money is. And that's sort of my point, Senator, because you know where the votes are. You know the votes are there for tax cuts. You know they're not there for spending cuts. So isn't there any part of your voting pattern that is irresponsible? I don't think so, because, you know, I can only control how I vote. So I voted for the tax cuts, and I voted for spending cuts. The people who voted for tax cuts and spending increases, I think there is some hypocrisy there, and it shows they're not serious about the debt. But all throughout my career, I've always voted for spending cuts, and I'm happy to offset uh, cuts in taxes with cuts in spending. So, no, I think that uh, I've had a consistent position and been very concerned about the debt, and I want to shrink the size of government. So the reason I'm for tax cuts is I want to return more of the money to the people who own that, who, who, who actually deserve to have their money returned to them, but it also shrinks the size of government by cutting taxes, or Se- should if you'll cut spending at the same time. Senator Paul, I don't need to tell you this was a rough week in terms of White House personnel. Do you think the president was well served this past week by his chief of staff, John Kelly? You know, I don't know the ins and outs of who hires and fires and who goes through personnel files, but uh, 
You know, all I can say is from looking from the outside in and not really knowing all of the facts that obviously domestic violence should be roundly condemned, particularly in an advanced world like ours. That's just something that we shouldn't countenance. Is that a message you think this White House has communicated clearly? You know, I don't know. I just don't know the ins and outs. And I was kind of distracted for about, you know, 24 hours of that news cycle, you know, talking for long periods of time about sure. the deficit. And so, and it's hard for me, and I know the media gets consumed with this, you know, but it is sort of a personnel thing that those of us on the outside don't know the ins and outs. And I know everybody wants to speculate on it. Sure. But I think really that we should all roundly condemn domestic violence and then the, well, look, the complicated look, matters that really they have to deal with because they know all the facts and we don't. Sure, you know. but setting aside the ins and outs, uh, the president said on Twitter, due process, lives are being ruined. The vice president said, no tolerance. Can you reconcile yeah. those two? And if someone in Kentucky asked you, Senator, what's their position on this? Could you explain it to them? Right. You know, it's difficult for me to get involved in theirs other than to say that absolutely no place for domestic violence in our world and then beyond that, I will say that it, it, there is complicated things, and somebody has to, I mean, if you've ever been to family court with he said and she said, and I'm not saying that I'm denying what these women are saying. I'm just saying that these things are very, very complicated. If you go to family court and you're a family court judge, you talk about a very, very difficult job. Um, but that being said, I don't want to think, I'm not, I don't want anybody to believe I'm making excuses. There is no excuse for domestic violence. Senator Paul, thank you so much for joining us this Sunday, and we'll be back in one minute with the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Please stay with us. Like what you're hearing? Get even more great content from CBS News Radio podcasts. Listen to TV broadcasts like CBS Evening News and Face the Nation on demand. I'm John Dickerson. And don't miss The Takeout, a politics, policy, and pop culture podcast from CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. We have our first member of the Trump administration cabinet at our table, Mick Mulvaney. Will you ask the wrong people first? Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. And we're back with California Congressman Adam Schiff. He is the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, and he joins us from, as they say, beautiful Burbank, California. Congressman, good morning. Uh, the president, morning. as you well know, and as the nation has learned, declined to release the memo that you and the staff of the House Intelligence Committee on the Democratic side drafted. The president tweeted about this, as I'm sure you're also well aware, yesterday. Let me read that for the audience. The Democrats sent a very political and long response memo, which they knew, because of sources and methods and more, would have to be heavily redacted, whereupon they would blame the White House for lack of transparency told them to redo and send back in proper form. Congressman, was the memo improperly drafted and in bad form? Uh, no, of course not. And uh, the hypocrisy of this just kind of reaches out and grabs you by the throat. Uh, here the Republicans write a memo which the FBI quite accurately describes as misleading and omitting material facts. The Department of Justice says it would be extraordinarily reckless uh, to release this. Uh, and what does the president do? He says, I'm going to release it. Before I even read it, 100 percent, I'm going to release it. This is a president who puts his own personal interest above the national security interests of the country. Uh, now, they claimed when they released the Republican memo that this was in the interest of full transparency. And all the White House people were saying full transparency. Well, apparently full transparency only goes so far. Are there sources look, and methods problems with the memo you submitted? We're going to sit down with the FBI and go through any concerns that they have uh, and any legitimate concerns over sources and methods uh, we will redact. But did the you do FBI, that before you submitted the memo, Congressman? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Unlike the Republicans, we gave the FBI and the Department of Justice 
our memo even before we took it up into committee and invited their feedback as to any concerns over sources and methods. But what's really going on here, uh, Major, is the president doesn't want the public to see the underlying facts. Uh, what is revealed in our memo are quotations from the very FISA application that really demonstrate just how misleading the Republicans have been. Their goal here is to put the FBI on trial, to put Bob Mueller's investigation on trial, and the president is only too happy to accommodate. But the president doesn't want you to see these facts from the FISA application because it completely undermines his claim of vindication. Uh, and, and the, yes, Congressman, let me ask you about this, because I think it's a very important threshold question outside of the very intense partisan atmosphere. You mentioned FISA twice for our audience, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. These are specialized warrants, secret surveillance. Is it your representation to the nation, sir, that everything that the FBI did in the process of obtaining that surveillance warrant on Carter Page absolutely followed proper protocol, every evidentiary standard was met, and there was nothing askew about that warrant ever. Uh, Major, there's nothing askew about that warrant that I can see. Uh, and if the Republicans were really concerned about this, because everything that I have seen, the FBI acted uh, completely appropriately, mm -hmm. they would have invited the FBI before our committee, as I urged them to do, and asked them questions. Why didn't you specifically identify this? And the FBI could have said, because we mask identities, uh, as you would want us to mask identities. Uh, at, well, why didn't you reveal the political bias? And they could say, we did reveal the political bias, and here's where we re revealed it. They didn't want to do that because they wanted to put out a very misleading memo. Now, it's very important to look at what the FBI said about our rebuttal and what they didn't say. Uh, what they've said is that certain information in it is classified, and of course that's true. The facts, all of the facts in the FISA application are classified. But the FBI never said that anything in our rebuttal was inaccurate, uh, and that's also important because our memo does lay out the accurate facts, which we think the public should see. Now, we will redact it to make sure that we're very protective of sources and methods, but we think the public should see this because, as the chairman has said, this is only the first phase. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to be fully accurate, Major, one last point, this is not the first phase. This is the second phase. The first phase began with that midnight run the chairman made to the White House where he misrepresented where he received information that he had, in fact, gotten from the White House. Uh, and here we see, once again, the chairman refusing to answer whether this whole memo was cooked up right. in concert with the White House, and that's really the problem we're dealing with. Congressman, I know you've had your difficulties and your feuds with Chairman Nunes. Have you read the memo recently drafted by Charles Grassley, the senator from Iowa, and Lindsey Graham, Republican senator from South Carolina? Have you read that? You know, I have read the different iterations of it because they put it through certain redaction reviews, but I can't uh, claim to be uh, intimately familiar with everything in the Grassley correspondence with DOJ. Because as you well know, they are asserting that their memo is more detailed and more damning of the FBI than the Nunes memo. And this really is a central question. Did the FBI follow all proper procedures? And if I heard you correctly, you said, yes, they did. There is nothing that the FBI did that was wrong in the Carter Page surveillance warrant, correct? I think, I think they followed uh, all the correct procedures, yes. Uh, everything I have seen, they followed the correct procedures. I will say this in terms of the Grassley uh, memorandum or the Grassley letter. It is part of the same effort, along with the chairman of our committee, uh, to try to put the FBI and Bob Mueller's investigation on trial. It is a well-known defense tactic. When the facts look increasingly incriminating of your client, you try to put the government on trial. 
Uh, and what this, of course, detracts from is the investigation that we need to be conducting of what the Russians did, how they did it, the connections they had with the Trump campaign, and most importantly, how do we protect the country going forward? That's not the interest of this Grassley letter. That's not the interest, obviously, of Chairman Nunes. But that is what the national interest holds. Uh, and that's really what we need to pay attention to. Thank you very much for being with us. We're joined now by North Carolina Republican Mark Meadows. He is the chairman of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus. His group was very much opposed, well, that's putting it mildly, to last week's budget agreement. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Major. So, a lot of spending and well, declarations I... that, that means the death now or is the House Freedom Caucus is toast well, I, I, I think we've we've had a number of articles written about our demise uh, for many, many years, and yet we're still here fighting on behalf of the millions of Americans who feel like Washington, D.C. Uh, has forgotten them. But I can tell you the real problem with this particular one is that our leadership caved, uh, the swamp won, and the American taxpayer lost, and, and there's no other way to... The Republican leadership uh, Without caved. a doubt. I mean, without a doubt. Our original play was to make sure that we funded the military, we kept other spending flat. That's what we passed, and yet uh, what we got put on the, the House floor just... Uh, you know, a few hours later was this unbelievable budget deal that spent American taxpayer dollars. You said leadership. Do you want the speaker's job? No, I don't want the speaker's job, but I think that at this particular point, we have to have some real soul-searching on what's going on. Uh, you've also been mentioned, Congressman, a lot of jobs. Chief of Staff, President of the United States, you want that job? You know, really, uh, General Kelly is doing a great job, and uh, contrary to a lot of the, the headlines that are out there, I can tell you that I don't believe his job's in jeopardy. I know that the president has not spoken to me or Mick Mulvaney about replacing him. In fact, quite the opposite. In my conversations with the president, he has expressed confidence in, in General Kelly, and, and certainly he's brought order and, and uh, responsibility to the White House. One thing I have heard about General Kelly is that he is not as adept in politics as perhaps a chief of staff should be. Do you worry about that? Nor should he be. He was a general. I mean, and so, uh, you know, it, it's incumbent upon view, a lot of us. important part of the job? Well, it's an important staff? part of the job. But I think it's incumbent upon an, all of uh, us to make sure that we give him the, the uh, political backdrop that maybe some of these decisions are being made. I know that he's reached out to me a number of times uh, on a, a number of different issues. And so uh, he, he's not managing in a vacuum. He's uh, truly trying to make sure that the president gets the best information. I believe he does that. Could the president have fought harder on this budget deal? Well, I, th I think the the president was faced with well, a choice. Him to uh, well, him. I was uh, was uh, expecting him to continue to push back on uh, draining the swamp, and uh, but yet he was given a binary choice: either you support the military and and support this particular budget, uh, or you don't. And I can tell you that that's not the choice that many of us on Capitol Hill believed uh, was before us. It was either supporting the military. Or continuing what I would say the traditions of the Senate. At some point, we're going to have to say, Mitch McConnell, enough is enough. 51 votes on anything that is of national security interest. It is time that we change this. The American people, your viewers right now, could care less about the traditions of the Senate. And the they do care will. about their pocketbook. And what we've done is we've actually taken money from them uh, to grow the size of government by almost 13 percent. 
you know, major. I, I so can't without believe. putting too yeah. fine a point on it, how deep yeah. is the swamp now? Well, the the, the swamp is, is obviously deeper, but when you look Our at three hundred billion, when you look at three hundred billion over a ten year period, you know, it, it makes uh, even a drunken sailor blush. And the the problem with that is the drunken sailor actually spent his own money. We've got the government spending yours. Immigration. Yeah. Bottom line for House Freedom Caucus, once something comes from the Senate, what must it have to get through the House of Representatives? Well, the, the Speaker of the House needs to do what he said he would do, and that is to whip the good Labrador bill, put it on the floor, make sure that it passes out of out of the House. We are the most conservative body, and, and we've got a bill ready to go. And uh, Chairman in, in Goodlatte... Other words, in other words, the Speaker should not wait for the Senate. Do that now. Absolutely not. If we're going to wait for the Senate, why don't we all go home, take naps, and wait for, uh, you know, 60 senators to decide what uh, we're going to do as a nation. I, I didn't sign up for that, and most people didn't, that elected me didn't want me to sign up for that. So it's critical that we go ahead and work, and, and that's where you're going to see the Freedom Caucus engaging over the next couple of weeks. We're going to engage and hold our speaker to his word, which said that he was going to whip the good lap bill and make sure that it, it has the threshold and, and then send it to the Senate. You're very good at this. Fifteen seconds. What's in the bill? The four pillars? Well, the four pillars are in there, but the biggest thing is it puts an emphasis on border security and not creating a special pathway to citizenship. Very good. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Now for some in-depth analysis. Who doesn't love that after a very busy week here in Washington? We are joined now by our expert panel. Susan Glasser is the chief international affairs columnist at Politico. Ramesh Panuro is senior editor at the National Review. He's got a couple of other titles, also with the American Enterprise Institute and Bloomberg View. We want to welcome to this program Susan Davis to the broadcast. She is a congressional correspondent with National Public Radio. And Peter Beinhart is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a CNN political commentator. Wow, that's a mouthful now that that's all out of the way. Susan, I, I want to set the domestic stuff aside just for a second because I'm fascinated by what's going on at the Olympics and all of what the South Koreans perceive as this unbelievable propaganda coup so far for the North Koreans. What should we make of it? Well, you know, they're calling it the Olympic opening. And, uh, you know, it's pretty striking that Kim Jong-un, the uh, leader of North Korea, has basically decided to use the Olympics uh, as, a, as a way of stealing a march on the uh, Trump administration. That extraordinary picture, right, from the other day of Kim's sister sitting feet away from the vice president of the United States, who's, if not scowling, then something pretty close to scowling. I think that it, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Kim has succeeded in dividing South Korea from the United States, but I would look for a lot of tension uh, in the months and weeks ahead. Tension because the South Koreans will resent this sort of overshadowing of what was supposed to be their moment, or just a sense that they don't believe the North Koreans are, are interested in any kind of reunification, that would be the biggest issue of all, or even any decent diplomatic relation. Well, look, there's a lot of skepticism in South Korea, but right now there's skepticism in South Korea about Washington as well. Skepticism about the Trump Being administration. Being too hard on all this. Absolutely. There's a new leader of South Korea, President Moon, who has uh, decided that talks might be the way to go. Uh, he's now been invited to Pyongyang. If that summit comes off, I think you could see a real concern that the United States and Japan are trying to hold the line to be tough on North Korea and that the South Koreans are interested in pursuing much more diplomacy and conversation. Okay, excellent. We will revisit that. Susan? Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, yeah. said normal and reasonable this last week at the White House. Did it feel that way? Does it look that way? Do you think that most Americans watching this play out as they did said to themselves, yes, reasonable? If this was an isolated incident, maybe, but this is about something much bigger than Rob Porter, right? This is about Roy Moore. 
This is about the Me Too movement. This is about the Access Hollywood tapes. This is about an administration and a president that time and time again has been dismissive of female voices and female concerns at a time when women voters are incredibly motivated. You have women running for office in the midterm elections at record levels. And you have a real anger among women in this country that they perceive uh, men in power to not care about their concerns. And it also comes, I think, at a moment where, on Capitol Hill at least, Republicans have a much better story to tell. You know, also this week in the House, Republicans under Speaker Ryan passed a landmark piece of legislation to change the culture of Capitol Hill, to crack down on lawmakers who pay out, to make them pay out of pocket when they have these sexual harassment settlements that they're involved in. Not a lot of headlines Not a lot of headlines. created and by this that is particular the important piece of business, which you just identified. They get no credit for it because what the president says and does overwhelms everything else. So the good things they're doing are completely negated. Ramesh, speaking of what the president says, when he says due process, does that not open up for those 19 women who have said you assaulted or abused me in some way? Give them the avenue at the president's own Twitter feed? Well, I do think it's, due process? I think it's in the back of everybody's mind when he talks about this issue. But you'll notice that the due process that he's concerned about is the due process for the accused. Um, there has not been any expression of sympathy by the president. We don't, have, we don't define due process on one side of right. the ledger in our country. Right, but, but I think it's really remarkable. He says in his tweet, some of these allegations against people are true, but he doesn't say anything about of, in sympathy for anybody who has been mistreated. People get their lives destroyed by allegations. He, says, he doesn't talk about people getting their lives destroyed by actual And abuse. the attendant trauma of abuse. Up until right. he started commenting on it, I think you could have made the case that the president had been ill-served by his staff. But it was his decision to make these comments repeatedly in a way that I, I agree with Susan Davis. The president had been on a little bit of an upswing. He'd been going up in the polls. This is a completely self-generated political disaster. Peter, do you believe the calm reassurances that there's no turmoil inside the West Wing? A presidency with Donald Trump is guaranteed to have turmoil, right? I mean, he's walking turmoil. Um, and part of what's happened here is, you know, one of the points that the Me Too movement has tried to make, I think, is that environments where you do not have significant numbers of women in positions of power tend to breed tolerance for this kind of abuse. And this is a classic example of this, right? This is the least diverse pre administration, least diverse White House since at least the 1980s, if not before that, right? Does anyone imagine that if you had had a more genuinely diverse White House that Rob Porter would have been able to survive for a year when, we, when you had these two ex-wives out there, when you had the FBI already gathering this information? It's a culture of tolerance that flows from the fact that it's an administration that looks nothing like the United States in 2018. And yet, Mick Mulvaney, Susan, said, no, there's, no one should think we have a, a lax attitude about domestic abuse. Well, not only uh, does that sort of defy the facts, but I, I want to point out a couple of other important things. Number one, this is also a national security crisis, really, of a very significant level. So Rob Porter was in this crucial position seeing all the paperwork, presumably including the nation's most classified secrets, with an interim security clearance. He was informed, uh, General Kelly was informed, that there would be no uh, permanent classified uh, uh, clearance for him, that, that is a violation, really, of basic principles. It suggests that the White House, far from having become a more orderly, uh, uh, disciplined place under John Kelly, has actually made an extraordinary exception and potentially given the nation's most classified secrets to somebody who the FBI believed was not worthy of a clearance. So that now, is my understanding that if you have an interim 
clearance, those things that are registered at the very top of the security pyramid, you don't touch because you don't have it. So I think Rob Porter had a lot, but I've been told by those who are not necessarily in the White House but who are familiar with this general process that if you're on an interim basis, at the very top, you don't see it. Well, that's this why would have been the executive secretary of the National Security Council who would have handled that. Well, but that's what's so exceptional about the White House not having actually come forward with a clear and consistent account of the facts. We don't know yet what Rob Porter was actually handling and whether, whether he did or not, number one. Number two, his clearance would have run out his interim clearance on January 15th of 2018. And Ramesh, it's clear that his portfolio was enlarged when some of these issues were at least at some level known. He went, staff secretary is a big enough job, but he also, not just in terms of fact-checking, but played a drafting hand in the State of the Union, but also was beginning to run trade meetings and interacting with those uh, most concerned about future Trump trade policy. uh, So it seems like a conscious decision was, you're not only good, you're extra good. Everything we have heard from the administration is that they thought of him in very, uh, very high terms. Uh, They trusted him, they relied on him, and that reliance was growing, not shrinking. And I think that we have the moral problem we've discussed here, we've got the security problem potentially, but we've also got this managerial problem. And it's been really stark relief as we've seen all of these conflicting accounts, all this backbiting leaks surrounding this controversy. And yet, Susan, the government continues to function. There is at least a bipartisan arrangement on the budget. There are details to be worked out over the next six weeks. We've got immigration right in the middle of it. When you talked to members, and when you did last week, was there a big sigh of relief around this budget deal in a sense that we can have some calm for a year and a half, even at a high cost? There is certainly the expectation that at least what this deal does is end this cycle of shutdown threats and default threats for the next two years. What we don't know yet, and I think you heard that today from people like Congressman Meadows, is is this a vote that comes back to haunt Republicans, right? Is this a vote that becomes an issue in primary races this year, in general elections, that the question of what is this party about and what does it believe in? And is fiscal responsibility still something that is at the core of what it means to be a conservative in Washington? And that vote this week undermined that for a lot of Republicans in Congress. Peter, two issues for you. That, what is it a Republican under President Trump? Mark Meadows just said the swamp's deeper since he got here. And two, what do you make of this clash between the House Intelligence Committee Democrats and the White House about this underlying memo and Adam Schiff saying, I think everything the FBI did was proper. There's plenty of people who wonder if everything the FBI did was proper with Carter Page and the surveillance memo. Right. Uh, surveillance warrant, forgive me. You know, I think we have to move away from this narrative that the Republican Party used to be the party of fiscal responsibility and suddenly now has become irresponsible, right? We've seen this movie twice before, right? With Ronald Reagan and with George W. Bush, big tax cuts, high levels of spending, wars that are paid for on the credit card, and then it's only when Democratic presidents come into office that the Republican Party freaks out about deficits and debt to the degree that they, in 2011, they were actually willing to default on the national debt, throwing the entire world into crisis. Because it was such a big issue, theoretically. Because it was quite a big issue. And now what they're doing is they're doubling the size of the debt when the economy is very strong, right? What any economist will tell you is that when the the economy is strong, you want to reduce the debt. So the debt is low so you can stimulate the economy and have to increase the debt when the economy is weak. What you're now doing is you're overheating the economy, forcing the Federal Reserve to actually raise interest rates and undoing the very stimulus that you've just passed, right? This is how 
utterly incoherent this is, right? And I think we need to finally put a lie to this idea that the Republican parties ever really cared about fiscal responsibility. They care about cutting taxes. They care about m military spending. They do not care about fiscal responsibility when it matters. Susan, I want you to take this on in a couple of ways. One, does the defense spending increase make any difference in Asia in terms of the way the North Koreans look at our intentions, the way the Japanese, the way the Chinese? And secondarily, do you think the Chinese look at these fiscal choices and say the United States is in for some rough times that they may not even anticipate and we're even stronger than we were a couple of months ago, comparatively, from an economic point of view? Well, look, I think the Chinese in general, both, uh, as you pointed out, on the budget politics, but just more generally on the Trump administration foreign policy, they might be the biggest winners in the entire world from the Trump administration. And I think there's a sense that while the long-term trends were already suggesting the relative rise of China compared with the United States, that Donald Trump has been like a, a, a dramatic accelerator of Chinese influence, power, and prestige around the world. That is being tested in some ways in this North Korea crisis. Can the United States work together uh, more coherently with China on a, a, a major foreign policy problem? That's not clear at all. But the bottom line is that uh, the economic investments, there's a lot of talk about uh, budget increases for the military, for example. Uh, it, this strategic effort required to pivot to Asia has become the dream. Uh, it was the dream of the Obama administration. It might now be the dream of the Trump administration. Yet to be realized. That's right. Ramesh, That's I know right. you want to jump in. Yeah, I, you know, I think about one, 30 seconds. one undercovered aspect of this, Republicans are also deciding they don't think they need to accomplish anything. They don't need a reconciliation bill. They don't need to use the power they have to amass a better record going into November. That's an interesting decision that they've made politically. Well, give me, give me 10 more seconds. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because... They, with this budget, have basically decided they are not going to try to pass major legislation with a majority vote in the Senate. They have foreclosed that option, practically speaking. You would think that they would want to maximize their use of that power while they still have the House and the Senate this year, but apparently not. Susan, Ramesh, Peter, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to thank all of you for being on the Face the Nation panel. We'll be back in just a moment with Joe Califano. He's a legend. Come back. Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News. And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today. Our next guest is Joseph Califano. He was a key and crucial advisor to President Lyndon Johnson and later was the Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare under President Jimmy Carter. He's now on the CBS Board of Directors and his 14th book, Our Damaged Democracy, We the People Must Act, is out Tuesday. Joe Califano, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. What is damaged about our democracy? Uh, it's in deep trouble. Let me just start. Deeper than it was when you were in government. Much deeper. I mean, we, we, have a, we have a major crisis in the system. The president is uh, oh, so powerful, he's overweening the other two branches. This president or all presidents? All presidents. He's been building for 50 years. They've all been the same. Every president increases power. Uh, we have uh, one, uh, they do more legislation than the, than the Congress does. Through they, regulations. Through regulations. They, they put out about 20 regulations for any law Congress passes. That's number one. Number two, 
they have sent 100,000 people in the military to their death in combat. A million have been wounded in wars uh, since 1945, World War II. That have not been declared. No declaration of war. They haven't even bothered. And indeed, uh, in, uh, with respect to Obama, for example, uh, when he was in Libya, he went to Eric Holder, his attorney general, and he said, are these hostilities that I have to report to the Congress or get out? Holder said yes. Then he went to his own in-house counsel who said, no, you don't have to do it, and he didn't do it. So they've got their own... The White House staff has exploded. And Congress is to blame for letting the president in, uh, gather that much power? Congress is crippled and cowardly. Uh, look at the Iran resolution. Congress pressled itself so it didn't have to in any way, shape, or form vote on a Iran deal. The I nuclear deal, right. The nuclear deal. Didn't have to vote on it uh, because... Uh, of the, the, for the Democrats, the problems of the Jewish vote and the Jewish money, they didn't, want it, they didn't want it to be on record. They weren't on record. They had to enact a really, you know, Cirque du Soleil way of getting around it, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, they don't, they don't use their appropriations power. Uh, you talked about this a little earlier, but, I mean, they've been passing continuing resolutions for most of the last 20 years. Right. Uh, so, so and, 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 the, and the president has the p- power to supersede state law under the Constitution. Uh, it used to be the Congress that did that, because federal law is, is the law. If there's a conflict with state now the president does it by regulation. I want to ask you one thing, because I think nostalgia can sometimes be dangerous. Is it your belief that things were all so much better in the 60s when government was essentially populated by white men around a table... Wouldn't you say now, whatever our problems are, there are far more voices, far more people with access to power that they didn't have back then? There are. Thank God there are. But, but that's even very one-sided. The Democratic Party, uh, the last time the Democratic Party got a majority of the white votes was when Lyndon Johnson ran in 1964. Uh, they built up the, their, their proportion of the black vote. It's been over 90%, except for Hillary Clinton, in, uh, who only got 88%. On the Republican side, they now have a majority of the white vote in the 60s. They have about 20 to 30% max of the black, uh, down to 8% of the black vote. So we have this Pulling terrific apart. split in the parties that, that fractures them. At the conventions this year, uh, 50% of the... Uh, Democratic convention was white, 25% was black. A Republican convention, 94 was white, and less than 1% was black. So we have a racial split. We, we really have racial parties. And we also have, and, and you know, let me, I must say this, petty, petty partnership that we never had then. Look, 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 just to your, your prior guest, I mean, uh, can't Schiff talk to Nunez? They, they don't, not only don't they talk to out. each other, they put a wall up between their staff. You mentioned the conventions, and one of the fascinating things I saw in your book is you're advocating that Americans participate in primaries far more than they do because you have these very tiny percentages you identify in the book that produce nominees, which then the whole country has to deal with. Right. Look at the last election. People say, oh, Hillary, was, you know, she, had, she didn't offer anything. Uh, uh, Trump was an egomaniac. Well, those were the two candidates. Hillary was picked by 8% of the registered Democrats, Trump by 7% of the registered Republicans. That's a, that's a, that's so a profound So we all should point. look in the mirror. And before we let you go, 
The opioid crisis in this country is real, and it's an emergency. You have an idea about that. Well, the opioid crisis is real and it's an emergency. And this lack of trust is, is killing the ability of the government to deal with it. The government is uniquely positioned, the national government, because you really do deal with the whole system. How do you make the pills? Do you make them so they're hard to uh, 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 abuse? That's the Food and Drug Administration. What do you do with the medical profession? How do you train them? What do you do with the hospitals? The ability to limit what they're putting out in pills. My wife got almost 100 pills. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 then, and then beyond that, what do parents do? Right. Uh, because what's left in the medicine cabinet, that's where a third to a half of the kids get their first health. And when we talk about an all-of-government response, opioid could be one if people got together. If people got together and we had the kind right. of government we had. We well, have gotta, a government I, that's Joe, crashing. i gotta, I got to end it right there. Joe, thanks so much. For go, good luck on the book. Well, that's it for us today. Thanks for watching. I'm Major Garrett, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were OMB Director Mick Mulvaney, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, and Congressman Adam Schiff and Mark Meadows. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.